Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Hey friends, I hope that you are well, that you're healthy, that you're safe, that you're taking care of the people that you're around, the people in your home, your family, your roommates, and the people that you work with, Um, that you are loving people the way God has loved you. Today in this episode, we're going to end our series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. It's, It's all on the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and it ends with two requests, a request for forgiveness and a request for deliverance. But let's back up to the beginning of the prayer and slowly blend in these last two requests. So Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in the heavens everywhere, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Your will be done in us and through us. Give us today our daily bread. And then here's the last two requests. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So let's take the first one. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now a more literal translation would read something like, And forgive us our sins in the same manner that we've forgiven those who've sinned against us. Now, this aligns with Jesus' other teachings on forgiveness and his parables, but that makes the prayer a little more dangerous. God, forgive us, forgive me my sins in the manner that I've forgiven those who've sinned against me. But let's back up even further and let's talk about our sin and God's forgiveness of our sin, because confessing our sin to God is good, right? Like it acknowledges the bad that we've done or the good that we've ignored, and it also acknowledges the need that we now have to realign ourselves to God's way of living. Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 5, David prays, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy, Upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And finally, I confessed all my sins to you, God, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord. And God, you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. But before David confessed, he said his bones wasted away, his strength evaporated. Now, the Psalms are poetic. But, they, but, but we all know that poetry often expresses a truth that's even deeper than words might be able to give them. And I believe that there's a, a psychosomatic benefit to confessing our sins. Like, I think it actually makes us feel better, but ultimately it gives God space to help us live better. And we don't confess our sins to, like, stay accepted by God or saved The New Testament makes it clear that people are made right with God through trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that that he did the work that only he could do. 
Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Jesus is able to save completely and forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So like making sure that you confess each sin to God, it's not like that's what keeps you accepted by God or saved or whatever word you want to use. Like Jesus and only Jesus, he has done that and he's done that once and forever. We confess our sins to God from a place of security that God is our ever-present loving father and that his love is powerful enough to move us forward. We confess because we realize that sin suffocates the soul and confession begins to help it breathe again. But Jesus takes it further. He says, forgive us in the manner that we have forgiven others. Now this makes sense even though it hurts a lot. Because I think it's psychologically impossible to receive grace but refuse to extend it. So Jesus ties the two together, and he even goes further. A few verses later in Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15, he says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. And if you immediately connect the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here with heaven and hell, then you've missed Jesus's point, at least if you're thinking about heaven forever after you die or hell, however that works after a person dies. Jesus was like way more preoccupied with talking about eternal life here and now and hell on earth here and now. And forgiving others doesn't mean you pretend that what they did didn't actually happen. It doesn't mean rewriting history and acting like it's not as big of a deal as it feels to you. But it does mean that you're not going to allow what they did to dominate your soul. That you will work toward letting go of any sense of hatred or vengeance. Now, justice is something different. If justice is possible then that's a good thing. But it isn't in conflict with forgiving. You can get justice for something that was done wrong to you, and you can still have forgiveness for that person. But unforgiveness is something else. And think about it just from a logical, like not even totally emotional standpoint. Often the debt cannot be paid back. Like your dad can't make up the lost years of your childhood. A spouse that commits adultery, they can't uncheat. And that neighbor, like, she can't take her words back. She can't, like, unspeak them. And unforgiveness, it builds a nest inside of your heart until it eventually spills over and takes over. And you begin to believe a bloated, unrealistic narrative about the person who has sinned against you. Now now think about this. If we are likely to do this when someone cuts us off in traffic, which we are, we've all done it. Someone has cut us off in traffic, even though we've done that to other people before. They cut us off and we we see them through a certain lens. Like we, we even build up these ideas of what kind of character and person this must be to have so evilly cut us off. If we're likely to do that when someone cuts us off in traffic, then you and I can know for sure that we'll at least be very, very tempted to do this when someone's offense and sin to us is way deeper 
than a traffic violation. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 through 32 is brilliant, but I want to give it to you in reverse. So verse 32 first, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Jesus forgave you. And then verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, all brawling and shouting and slander, along with every form of wanting bad to happen to others. He says, get rid of all of this. The Greek words that he uses there literally means to raise up or to lift up, like when you, when you lift up a rock. Because unforgiveness only weighs you down. That's why you and I have to lift it up to get rid of it all. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus tells a parable, a story about, we'll say, man A. This man owns, or excuse me, he owes a king millions of dollars, but the king, in his grace, he cancels the debt. And so man A, the the guy who was forgiven the millions of dollars of debt, he leaves and he finds man B, who owes man A a few dollars. And man A throws man B into prison demanding payment. By the way, how would man B be able to pay man A back if he's in prison? And this is what unforgiveness does. It makes us foolish. Well, in Jesus' parable, the king that had forgiven like millions of dollars to man A, he finds out and he throws man A in prison. And then Jesus ends his parable in Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. He says, this is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive anyone else from your heart. And this is brilliant. Think about it. We place ourselves in a prison with our unforgiveness. We're demanding to be, quote-unquote, paid back. So Paul says, right, in Ephesians, Paul says, get rid of it, raise it up, lift it off. It will only weigh you down anyway. I've only truly hated one person in my life. My sister is now a, a believer. She's happily, uh, a happily married nurse. She's a mother of two but she was barely 20 years old when she became pregnant for the first time. And seven months in to the pregnancy, uh, the baby's father, he was high and he hurt my sister. And when I found out, I wanted to hurt him and I couldn't find him. And so I called my best friend, Matt. Matt and I didn't hang out a lot at that time. I'd become a you know a Christian. I was going to Bible college and Matt was kind of doing the opposite. But I called Matt. He was my best friend all through growing up. He'd lived with my family in high school. He loved my family, including my sister, as his own. But Matt was also, as I implied, he was rough, he was lost, and he was very broken. And I told him what had happened, and that if he saw this guy out at the bars that night, he could just do what he did best, Matt could, chaos and pain. And unbeknownst to me, my dad was listening to that phone call, and he said, Dust, you know what's going to happen if Maddie finds him. He's going to hurt him bad. And while I want to hurt him too, he's still the father of my granddaughter, your niece. And besides dust, how did Jesus ask us to handle our enemies? <laughs> and I, you said something smart to my dad, like, hey, quit bringing the Bible up. Man, this is like real life. I tried to make some kind of joke. But I knew what Jesus said. He said to pray 
for your enemies. Do good to them. I began to pray for this man every day. And by the way, Matt never found him that night. Um, and I called him the next morning and, and said, don't anymore. Don't try. My sister and this guy ended up getting back together after my niece was born. And even though he didn't change, my heart toward him did. Because I began to obey what Jesus said, to pray for my enemy and to do good to him. I even shared the gospel with him. And he didn't, he didn't give his life to Jesus. But I did, once again. And it made all the difference. Dallas Willard wrote that if my pride is untouched when I pray for forgiveness, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. So this then is how you should pray. Our Father in the heavens, everywhere, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in us and through us. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins in the manner that we've forgiven those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When I was 10 years old, I began stealing candy bars at Broadway Broadway Market in Webb City, Missouri, a small local grocery store in the town I grew up in. And my high school neighbor taught me, he taught me how to steal. And even though I knew it was wrong and I made my own, my own choice, Um, you could say my older neighbor led me into temptation, right? And the first time I tried it on my own, the owner, Mr. Wallace, he caught me. And in towns as small as this one, everyone knows everyone. And actually, Mr. Wallace went to high school with my dad in this same town. He caught me at the door, asked me where I was going. I told him I was going home. I didn't want to be late for supper. He asked me what I had under my shirt, Um Uh, nothing, sir, but I need to leave. And he said, wait a minute, let's have a look. We lifted up my shirt. He saw the Snickers candy bar. And uh, my actual response was, oh, that, yeah, I didn't have any change. So I was going to take this now, bring the money back. I haven't eaten much today. I was just a little hungry. And he took me into his office. He called my mom, told her what had happened. She picked me up and I had to wait in my room until my dad got home from work. Now, my dad had a good reputation in our town. Everyone liked and respected him. And so I wasn't feeling bad because I did something wrong. I was feeling bad because I knew my dad would be disappointed in me. He had taught me better. I had a relationship with my dad that even when I was a child, it was powerful. He was my hero. And I respected him so much, so I waited on my bed. Jesus concludes his how to pray banner with this. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. It isn't a great translation, at least for our modern ears. The same Greek word can mean either to tempt or to test. Context is crucial and motive is key. To test someone uses trials, like to reveal or strengthen their character. God does that all the time. But to tempt is to entice someone into sin, like to lure them in. And James chapter 1 verse 13 says, clearly, God does not tempt anyone to sin. Temptation to sin is a reality that all of us have to contend with. It's simply an opportunity to get a good thing in a bad way. And living in this world is going to offer plenty of opportunities to be tempted. But 
the source of temptation that gets blamed the most is the devil, Satan. And while some religious folks love to talk about the origins and powers of Satan, Scripture actually says very little about the details. Like, we know Satan is an enemy of God, an adversary of all followers of Jesus, but he doesn't have the same powers as God. Only God is omnipresent and all-knowing. Satan can't be everywhere at one time like God, nor does he know everyone's thoughts all the time. Peter warns in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be careful, watch out for the attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone, a victim, to devour. But keep in mind that Peter wrote this to the entire church, not to one individual. So let me just say this, I have no desire to change yours or anyone else's theology about Satan, like who he is, his origins, what power he has, or his strategies. But seeing every trial and temptation as as an attack by the evil one, that's going to tempt us to transfer our personal responsibility onto him. It also creates a false view of Satan's powers. Like, Like, what are Satan's powers anyway? I don't know, and neither do you. So we can stop blaming every temptation and trial on him. You and I are our main source of sinful temptation. James says this. James chapter 1, verse 13, after telling us that God tempts no one to sin, it says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and they are enticed. The truth about temptation to sin is that God always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has grabbed a hold of you except what is common to all people. God is faithful, and he will provide a way out. Another truth about temptation is that Jesus understands it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it says Jesus is our high priest and he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, we can approach him with confidence for grace and help when we need it. So our ultimate sinful temptations, they come from ourselves, our own heart. And God doesn't tempt us to sin. He provides a way out. And Jesus understands, like he empathizes, he feels for us. So with all of this as a backdrop, Jesus, he he calls us to pray that God would lead us not into temptation, that the Father would keep us from testing that we're not ready for yet, and that he would deliver us from the evil one. And God indeed leads and delivers Psalm chapter 68, verses 5 through 6, it says that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows and orphans, and that he leads us out of and delivers those who are in prisons. I had to wait on my bed for dad to get home after being caught stealing when I was 10 years old. Dad wasn't angry, but he was disappointed. And when your dad is your hero, disappointment is worse. And he could see the guilt and shame on me. And he asked me how many times I'd done this. I said, somewhere around 10 candy bars. So my dad said, then we need to go pay Mr. Wallace for all of those. That's his business. And that's how he provides for his family. And he told me to go get $10 from my little piggy bank. And 
when after I did that and I turned around, my dad was taking a $10 bill out of his wallet. He was handing it to me. And I told him that this was, you know, like, that's $20. It's way more than I'd stolen. He, and he said, Dusty, you owe him more than just paying him back for what you stole. You owe him respect. And so I went to my bank and I told him, well, here, let me get the 10 extra dollars. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you're my son and I'm responsible for you. And when you do great things and people tell me about it, I get to feel good and proud like that I had a part in that. But when you do something like this, I have to take some of the responsibility too because, Dusty, you're my son. As we entered into the store, my dad put his hands on my shoulders. From the moment we got out of the car until the moment we got back into the car, he never took his hands off my shoulders. My dad and Mr. Wallace, they shook hands and they talked a little bit. And then I apologized. I gave him the money and I explained why it needed to be double. And when we got back to the car, I told my dad that I was sorry for ruining his reputation and making our family look bad. Now, I'll never forget, he knelt down next to me. I was in the passenger seat. He said, Dust, you're my son and I love you, even when you don't do the right things. But you're going to have lots of opportunities to get good things in a bad way. So I hope the next time you'll remind yourself of who you are. You're a Frizzell and you're my son. God leads and delivers us by calling our name, by reminding us who and whose we are. How we pray, it reveals how we truly see God. Like if I'm constantly apologizing and telling God how bad I am, I clearly see him as angry and and disinterested in me. But God as our father, God as leader, and God as deliverer, well, that is something else. And Jesus knew this, and he gave us a model for how to pray, how to approach our ever-present Father in the heavens. Dallas Willard wrote that when we pray, we enter the real world, the substance of the kingdom, and our bodies and our souls begin to function for the first time as they were created to function. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in the heavens, everywhere. God, we know you're safe and good and love. Hallowed be your name. May our lives praise and glorify your holy name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in us and through us, here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Thank you for all you've given, for meeting my needs today and allowing me to share with others. And lead us not into temptation. Lead us away from testing that we're not ready for and deliver us from the evil one. Hands on our shoulders, leading us through it all. Amen. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.